Turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 3, uh, beginning today with verse 15. We have uh, been talking about the ministry of John the Baptist. We started that last week with the beginning of Luke 3, and I told you that Luke turns a corner here. Um, the first two chapters are taken up with the, the birth of John the Baptist, the birth of Christ. Um, we get a glimpse of Jesus at the age of 12 in the temple, and then uh, after those uh, brief looks at his early life, just enough to let us understand the incarnation. I don't know if we ever understand the incarnation, but at least uh, we know how it happened, that he was born of a virgin, that he came to this earth in uh, human form, God uh, dwelling among us. Then Luke dives into the, the heart of the story, so to speak, as he, in chapter 3, begins to tell us about the ministry of Jesus Christ. And that ministry begins with the forerunner, John the Baptist, and it begins at the Jordan River. So if you have your Bibles open, uh, I'm going to be reading from New American Standard uh, Translation. You can follow along in whichever one you have. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation, and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. Some of the other gospel writers fill in some of the narrative for us. They tell us that when Jesus came to be baptized in the Jordan by John, that John said to him, Why are you coming to me? You do not need to be baptized by me. I need to be baptized by you. But Jesus said to him, uh, No, uh, follow through with this, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Many people have wondered, you know, why did Jesus go into the Jordan to be baptized? What was the point of that? John's message was a message of repentance. And what did Jesus have to repent for? You know, he was without sin. Was there anything in his life that he needed to be baptized for repentance? And so it's at that 
point of the story that we have to take a step back and I need to give you some background relative to biblical typology. I'm going to explain that term and define it for you in just a moment. But um, we need to take a step back and see in what way did Jesus fulfill the very things that he is prescribing for us in his full identification with us. Uh, Let me read for you a definition of a type, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. This is uh, Roman numeral one, if you're following in your notes. Uh, From this website, ChristianCourier.com, I thought this was a pretty good definition, so I've copied it here for you. A type is a real, exalted happening in history which was divinely ordained by the omniscient God to be a prophetic picture of the good things which he purposed to bring to fruition in Christ. Now, this word type, or this subject of typology, is something that uh, has lately come into a whole uh, new uh, area of debate and discussion. Um, Many of the liberal writers of the last century, going back 50, 75 or more years, uh, didn't put much credence in types. They felt that uh, the Bible really didn't contain any types. That each author, Moses for example, or whomever they thought wrote the Pentateuch, uh, or David, or whomever wrote different parts of the Bible, Isaiah, etc., um, really were not forecasting anything. Uh, they were talking about their own times and their own experiences, or what they, you know, were writing about relative to uh, the experiences of Israel in that time. But they were they were writing pretty much in isolation. It was kind of a denial of the fact that the Holy Spirit has inspired the whole of Scriptures and that he is the author of a seamless book, even though it has 66 different sub-books and 40 or more authors, that the Bible really is a seamless whole. This is largely denied by liberal scholarship, if we can call it that. And so they don't believe in that supernatural element. So in other words, when we come to talk about the Jordan River and we talk about Joshua in the Old Testament, well, that didn't have anything to do with anything except how the Israelites got into Canaan. That's the only thing that story was about. Well, many others have seen that in the Scriptures there are kind of a forecast, shadows of things to come that are relayed in the Old Testament that are real historical events, but in which God has planted significant spiritual truth. For example, we've talked before about the tabernacle in the wilderness and how God gave to Moses the formula for building the tabernacle. He gave him the plans. He said, you need to have a building in the middle. That building is going to have a holy of holies and a holy place. 
and the priests are going to be able to go in and, in and out of the holy place, but the holy of holies is where the Ark of the Covenant is going to be, and they can only go in there one time a year at Passover with the blood of the atonement. And around this building is going to be a courtyard surrounded by, in essence, a fence, and that's going to be called the outer court. And we've talked about how that Old Testament tabernacle is a picture it is actually a type of our living temples. We have an outer court. You're looking at my outer court this morning. If I left my outer court at home, you couldn't see me because I would be invisible. <laughs> but I can't go anywhere without my outer court, at least not now. And I'm not terribly anxious. <laughs> to, to, <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing the Lord, but, you know, as someone said, if I knew where I was going to die, I'd never go near the place. Now, I, 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 I kind of want to hang out a little bit more. As uh, the Apostle Paul said, it's good for you, it's good for me, and, you know, I'd, I'd like to uh, hang on to that. But my outer court is pretty important because that's the body that you see. But I also have a soul. I have a soul where my personality resides. The gestures that my body makes when I talk, if you tied my hands, I couldn't say anything. The gestures that my hands make are actually coming from my personality. They're coming from my soul, my mind, my will, and my emotions, which relate to that holy place where the priest could go in and out, because that's the place where everything kind of happens inside of me. And then in the very core of my being is my spirit. And that's where God lives, in my spirit. I am a living temple of the living God. So my body is the real tabernacle. And the one they built in the wilderness is merely a type of the real thing. It gives us a picture of what the real thing is like. They built a tabernacle. Yes, they did. It was very literal and very real. And they built it just like God told Moses to build it up on the mountain, just exactly according to plan. But it was designed to teach them an object lesson of something to come. And that's what we mean by typology. There are object lessons throughout the Old Testament that are designed to show us something. They're very real. They happened in history quite literally. The Israelites, after 40 years of wandering about in the wilderness, and you remember the map I put up for you last week with the Sea of Galilee up north, the Jordan River Valley flowing down in the middle and the Dead Sea down south, and Jerusalem is over on the, you know, westward side, uh, going toward the Mediterranean. They crossed the Jordan River into the land of promise, just north of the Dead Sea, opposite Jericho. And interestingly enough, that's precisely where John the Baptist was baptizing. He was baptizing in the Jordan River near Jerusalem as you go down the Jordan Valley 
about where the Israelites would have crossed the river several thousand years ago, led by Joshua. So when we talk about typology, the river Jordan actually becomes a type for us. It becomes a symbol, a picture of some important truth in our spiritual life. And in order to understand the significance of that, we have to understand what happened in the original part. If you were to go back to the book of Joshua, and we don't have time to get into all the depths of that this morning, but I hope you'll read it this week. Read the first four chapters of Joshua. It'll give you a lot of insight into this. And when you go back to Joshua and you read those early chapters, Joshua begins with a strange statement. Moses, my servant, is dead. What an odd way to start a book. (laughs) Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, Joshua, you're my choice. You're the successor. You're going to lead this people across this Jordan into the promised land. What is the significance of that? Well, do you remember why Moses was not allowed to go into the land of promise? He disobeyed a clear commandment of God. And in his anger and in his frustration, he struck the rock twice and disobeyed. And because of that, God says, you cannot enter the promised land. Moses was the lawgiver. And tragically, in his own life, he was a picture of what happens to us under the law when we break it. We forfeit blessing. Moses' name, by the way, Moshe, literally means taken out of the water. (laughs) It's kind of interesting that uh, he led them through the Red Sea and the Jordan also had particular significance. But Moses, the lawgiver, has died. And Yahashua, the Savior, is going to take them into the Promised Land. Joshua's name in Greek is Jesus. And it literally means the Savior. And so we find that as Jesus comes to the Jordan, here's the Savior coming to begin his ministry in a specific way that relates to what happened back in the Jordan River those several thousand years previously. Now, we might ask the question, did Joshua accomplish the goal? Did he give the people rest? And the answer to that is, not quite. Partially, but not quite. We know that because we have a divine commentary. You know, when God writes a commentary, it's always accurate. You know, and it's not an opinion, it's, it's infallible truth. And in Hebrews chapter 4, God writes a commentary on what happened at the Jordan River 
as he speaks through the writer of Hebrews, and he says this, For if Joshua had given them rest, David, by inspiration, would not have spoken of another day after that, saying, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts like those in the wilderness. For if Joshua had given them rest, there would not have been this other day. And so today, you have the opportunity to enter the rest of God. For the one who has entered into God's rest has himself ceased from all his labor. Going into the promised land for the Israelites was a promise from God it is a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a place where I will supply everything you need. I will care for you. I will drive your enemies out before you. I will care for you. I will give you the land. In fact, to prove the point, the first battle was so dramatic, they did nothing but praise God. You know, do you remember the Battle of Jericho? They crossed the Jordan River. There's another little part in there that uh, I don't have time to get into this morning, but for 40 years, somehow or another, they forgot about circumcision. So after they got over the Jordan, they, the, all the males were circumcised. Kind of an important spiritual symbol as well. And then when everyone was ready, they started marching around Jericho, the walls of Jericho, this massive fortified city, praising God and sounding trumpets until on the seventh day, the walls came crashing down. And all they had to do was go take the spoil. Because God fought that battle for them. And God provided it. And he said, this, this is what it's going to be like when you're following me. I'm going to do these things for you. It's a land of my provision. Well, when we come to the Jordan in the New Testament, we find some interesting parallels. John the Baptist was the last prophet of the old era. He was the last spokesman under the law. Jesus Christ came to the Jordan when he was 30 years of age, about to begin his public ministry, the forerunner and first fruits of a whole new era. Jesus is going to model something for us. That Jordan River has particular significance. Now, you remember last week we were studying the fact that the Jordan and the baptism of John was a baptism of repentance. And we most frequently associate repentance with, well, I've sinned and I need to repent. But actually, when you've sinned, what does the Scripture say to do? Confess. You know, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. 
Repentance has more to do with the realignment of my will with God. Confession has to do with acknowledging that I am wrong and God is right. And then repentance means now that I've acknowledged that, I'm going to turn away from my way and go God's way. I'm going to bring my will into alignment with his will. And I submit to you that when Jesus came down into the waters of the Jordan to be baptized, he was modeling for us a perfect repentance. Because what he was doing in that action was saying, I am publicly aligning my will with the Father. Now, you say, had he ever done anything wrong before then? No. He had nothing of sin to confess. But the one thing Jesus did have was a self-life that was independent. You say, but he was God. Yes, but he was also man. He was fully God, fully man. He is his own person. And in human flesh, he has a mind, he has a will, and he has emotions. And friends, there's nothing sinful about having a mind, will, and emotions. God made us like that. God made Adam like that. When he made Adam, he said, this is very good. But we were intended to be in subordination to the Father in all things. And I am convinced that as Jesus came into the Jordan, what he was publicly doing was he was publicly standing with us and saying, I declare that my will and my mind and my Life is devoted and completely committed to the Father in every respect. I am not going to live on my own initiative. But I am only going to speak and act as the Father guides me. I am completely subordinate to His direction. If you doubt the truthfulness of that, listen to Jesus' own testimony. John, in particular, records it in a number of places. Jesus says, I never do anything but what I see my Father doing. I never, I never do my own thing. I always do what I see the Father doing. Or, I never speak my own words. I only speak the words the Father gives me. I wonder how much you and I are like that. When someone comes to us for advice, for example, whose words do they get? Yours or God's? And if you don't hear anything from God, do you just spout off anyway? Just raising a few questions here. <laughs> well, I didn't hear anything from the Lord, but I'll give you my opinion. 
you know. And and my question then becomes, what good is your opinion? It's no better than anybody else's opinion. Um, when you're in the middle of a situation and the conversation is going on, what kind of words do you use? Do you use words that are very common and earthy? Or do you speak words that are encouraging and uplifting and a blessing to the people around you? You know, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, for example, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only such a word is as good for the need of the moment that gives grace to those who hear and builds them up. I'm not talking about the fact that you can't uh, share a good joke, the right kind of joke, or have humor. I think Jesus had a sense of humor. I think children particularly made him laugh. <laughs> he had a lot of fun with them, and they must have liked him because they all wanted to flock around him. Uh, children are not typically drawn to, to somber, stodgy sticks in the mud. You know, they're drawn to people that uh, have a little bit of jolliness about them. I think Jesus had a good sense of humor. I think he was fun to be around. I think people enjoyed him. They flocked to him. He wasn't, he wasn't so holy that sinners couldn't get near him. And I'm not suggesting that that's holy, but sometimes we put on airs and it drives everybody away. Jesus was the most holy person that ever walked the planet and people were drawn to him. And yet he said, I don't ever say anything that I don't hear my father say. In other words, what he was telling us by his testimony is, my life is lived moment by moment in complete control and subordination of my father. I always do what matters to him. And by coming into the Jordan and being baptized by John in his identification with us, he was saying, I submit and die to myself that my Father may live this ministry through me. Now, when Jesus came up out of the waters of the Jordan, what happened? The Gospel writers tell us that the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove out of heaven. And a voice was heard which said, This is my beloved Son. In Him I am well pleased. Now that causes me to ask another question. Why did the Holy Spirit come upon Jesus at the Jordan River when He was 30 years old? Wasn't He already indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Didn't he have the Holy Spirit inside of him from birth? Of course he did. In fact, according to the scripture, that which was in Mary was conceived out of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was responsible for his whole life. He was like the first Adam, in whom God breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and Adam became a living soul. Jesus was born of the Spirit, and in the Spirit, He lived His whole life and dwelt. He was the living tabernacle of God. 
As John put it, we beheld his glory, glorious of an only begotten of the Father, the one who became flesh and tabernacled among us. And yet, when he came up out of the waters of Jordan, the Holy Spirit came upon him. And I suggest to you that there is a strong significance in what Jesus experienced and what he has for us. Because John said, the one who comes after me is mightier than I, and he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and with fire. And when Jesus met with his disciples in the upper room on the morning of the resurrection, you know, we've talked about this a number of times, but I'm hoping this morning it'll kind of all come together for you at the Jordan River here. When Jesus met with those disciples in the upper room, He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Actually, I was reading a commentator this week who pointed out the fact that in the original language, it's an imperative and the word is take. You take the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them and said, you take the Holy Spirit. He was talking about right this minute, right now. Because for the first time, their tabernacles had been cleansed and God could come and live in them. That's one of the primary differences between the old era and the new era, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Holy Spirit could be with people in the Old Testament, but not in them because really the stain of sin was still in their life. You remember what Moses and the people did regarding the tabernacle after it was all built and assembled? They sprinkled it with blood and dedicated it unto the Lord. And then the glory cloud came and dwelt upon it. And the very same thing happened the morning of the resurrection as Jesus met with his disciples. He had completed the atonement. They were cleansed from sin for the first time in history since the Garden of Eden. The Holy Spirit could live in them. And He did. He came in them right that moment. But, Jesus said, don't even think about going out to minister until you have been empowered from on high until the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The promise of the Father. What's the difference? The difference is between the indwelling new birth and the clothing and baptism of the Holy Spirit to empower for service and and a holy life. And in that upper room on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon them like a rushing mighty wind. And the Scripture says... They began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance and cloven tongues like fire set upon the head of every one. Fire in Scripture is always a symbol of purity and holiness. And now they are empowered by the Holy Spirit and also made to be holy. As Jesus comes out of the Jordan River, He is now equipped in the baptism of the Holy Spirit to begin his ministry. Just as you and I should be equipped for our ministry. The the rest of God is that place 
where we have ceased from our efforts and God is performing the work through us. I want to ask you a question this morning. Perhaps you're here and you've been a Christian for a length of time, months, years, and you love the Lord and you're doing your best to live for Him. You want to please Him. And to the best of your knowledge, every day you try to, to live like a good Christian. You try to to keep all the rules. You try to watch your tongue. You try to control your thoughts. You, you, you try to be sensitive to the needs of others and, and do good works. And frankly, you're getting worn out. You're getting tired. It's an effort. Some of you have been trying this for so long, you've given up. You've just said, well... I love the Lord and I'm glad I'm going to heaven, but I just can't be good. And I'm frustrated. I'm just not going to bother with it anymore. However I live, I live. I, I, I want to do right, but it's just not in me. The harder I try, the worse I get. Sound like anybody you know? Sounds to me like the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7. The good things I wish I could do, those are the things I don't do. And the very things I hate, I find myself doing all the time. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I'm tired of this. That's Paul in Romans 7. And then all of a sudden, he says, but thanks and praise be to God. Glory to God who sent his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the requirements of the law could be fulfilled in me, in us, who do not walk after the flesh, but by the Spirit. You see, you can't live the Christian life. And you cannot do the works of God. And you cannot be holy. Because you don't have it in you. No matter how much you love God, that will always drag you down. But Jesus is setting an example for us. Come to the Jordan. Die to yourself. Bring your will into alignment with the Father's by faith. Lord, I choose to, to deny my own desires and will and interest and purposes. And I submit fully to you. And now I ask you to pour your Spirit out upon me and empower me for holy living and for powerful service. I want to be filled with your Spirit. I want to be controlled by Him. And He will do that. He will do that. <laughs> It's Luke that tells us, <laughs> you people know how to give good gifts to your kids. If your son comes to you and says, Dad, I, I need some food. I, can I have some fish? You're not going to give him a snake. You know how to give good things to your kids. How much more 
does the Heavenly Father know how to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? The invitation is open. And the Jordan becomes for us a symbol of leaving the wilderness and dying to self and being empowered for ministry. And Jesus blazed the trail. He showed us how it was done. And the invitation is open to you this morning. Will you choose to live in your own power Or will you choose to live by the Spirit of God? Father, I pray this morning that you open our hearts and our minds to the truth that is contained here. And that we will, by your grace, submit our will to you. Open our heart. Acknowledge that you have the right to control our thoughts thoughts and our intents and our doings and Lord to fill us with your spirit we know you live in us but what we want this morning is for you to break out upon us and to clothe us with power from on high we ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ Amen.